Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to James Brown, the godfather of soul, born James Joe Brown Jr. on this day in history, May 3rd, 1933. In a one-room shack in the woods of Barnwell, South Carolina, a few miles east of the Georgia border. His parents split when he was very young, and at the age of four, Brown was sent to Augusta, Georgia to live with his Aunt Honey, the madam of a brothel. Good start. Growing up in poverty during the Great Depression, a young Brown worked whatever odd jobs he could find. For literally pennies, he danced for the soldiers at nearby Fort Gordon, picked cotton, washed cars, shined shoes. Here, James Brown talks about the ambition he had as a child. My ambition was to eat. We were very hungry. We were, we were very poor people, and and singing was one way. My music was able. I was able to earn a, a living. Mm-hmm. I was able to. We were living in a home one time, where we had over 19 people in the home, and the rent was only five dollars a month, and they couldn't get it. And I went and tap danced for the soldiers, and made twelve dollars. Was able to pay the rent for twi- for two months. So that's what. Music was for me. I had, I was able to go out and get, and make a decent life for myself. Like some people started to be a secretary, a secretary, an interviewer, a cameraman, an actor, or whatever. I was able to go with music, and I was able to. God gave me this inside uh, talent and uh, this inside vision, and be able to to make myself very, very much uh, aware and, and independent in my music. And I'm very lucky. Very lucky indeed. God-given talent. And he seized upon it early. Dismissed from school at the age of 12 for insufficient clothing, Brown turned to working his various odd jobs full-time. As an escape from the harsh reality of growing up black in the rural South during the Great Depression, Brown turned to religion and to music. He sang in the church choir, where he developed his powerful and uniquely emotive voice. As a teen, Brown turned to crime, though, and at age 16, he was arrested for stealing a car and sentenced to three years in prison. While incarcerated, Brown organized and led a prison gospel choir and met Bobby Bird. Here, James Brown talks about how prison changed his life. At the age of 16 years old, I was in the Jewish delinquent in Lord in, 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 uh, in uh, Rome, Georgia. And I got out of there. I was probably before I went there in school. But uh, I believe the people around here see that it was a need to bring me up, to raise me. I think they put me in prison to raise me. Because the people around here, I, my father told me that uh, my dad, is, it, it told my father that uh, that was the best place for James to go. They let me play the piano there. And I drew those kids and they went crazy. I sang gospel. And everything I touched turned to gold in a way of bringing people together. Always a gifted athlete. Upon his release from prison in 1953, Brown turned his attention to sports and devoted the next two years primarily to boxing and playing semi-pro baseball. But in 1955, Bobby Bird invited Brown to join his R&B vocal group, the Gospel Starlighters. Brown accepted. 
and with his overbearing talent and showmanship, he quickly became the dominant force in that group. Renamed the famous Flames, they moved to Macon, Georgia, where they performed at local nightclubs. Here, again, James Brown talks about this important time in his young life. It was very, very hard. I, from 1955, 56, until uh, my re- release, please, 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 I recorded it last in 55, and we released it. We released it in 56. It was very hard. Uh, please, please, a dynamite song, a high-energy show. But then when I got Try Me in 59, uh-huh. it began, I hit the pop charts, and I began to see the world. Things started happening for me. In 1956, as he said, the Flames recorded a demo tape of that song, Please, 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 and played it for Ralph Bass, a talent scout for King Records. He offered the group a record contract, and within months, Please, Please, Please had reached number six on the R&B charts. Here, James Brown talks about meeting Ralph and what happened next. A fellow was named by the name of Ralph Bass. He was on his way to... He was going through Megan, Georgia, en route, I think, to New Orleans, and he stopped over. And he heard this record on the air, and everybody was started jumping up and down. He was sitting in the bus station. saying, who's this guy? I never heard that record before. They say, it's not really a record. It's a local group. It's a local group. Who's that? It says, James Brown and the Famous Flames. And it was one of the old records that you play inside out. <laughs> Believe that? Same and you run real fast, you know. And uh, he uh, went to see my manager. And we were in Tampa, Florida, and uh, they called us and wanted us, to, wanted us to come to Cincinnati, Ohio, and record it for King Records under the, under the supervision of Mr. Nathan, Sid Nathan. And uh, we had to drive 900 miles. The first time I've ever stayed in a hotel with a television. And uh, I was really proud, and, and we worked very hard. You don't forget a thing like that, do you? The Flames immediately hit the road, touring the Southeast while opening for such legendary musicians as B.B. King and Ray Charles. Imagine the education James got out on that road. But the band didn't have a repeat hit to match the success of Please, Please, Please. And by the end of 57, the Flames had returned home. Needing a creative spark and in danger of losing his record deal, in 1958, Brown moved to New York City. We're working with different musicians whom he also called the Flames, recorded Try Me. The song reached number one on the R&B charts, cracked the 100 singles chart, and kick-started Brown's music career. He soon followed with a string of hits that included Lost Someone, Night Train, and Prisoner of Love. His first song to crack the top ten on the pop charts, peaking at number two. This is Lee Habib, the life of James Brown, born on this day in history. The rest of this remarkable life story, starting from nothing, from abject poverty to be one of the great stars in the history of the music business. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. On this day in history, James Brown was born. And there's no more iconic song than this one. And again, remember, now that you know, Brown's father, his papa got a brand new bag. And he didn't have one. And so when he sings about this, he knows from whence he sings. From his own personal experience, Stevie Wonder would dig deep in this well as well. So many great African-American artists would do the same. On a single night, and a very important night in Brown's life, October 24, 1962, Brown recorded a live concert album that would change his life at the legendary Apollo Theater uptown in New York City in a place called Harlem. Initially opposed by King Records because it featured no new songs. Oh, the horror. Live at the Apollo proved Brown's greatest commercial success yet, peaking at number two on the pop album charts and firmly establishing his crossover appeal. Here's the introduction to James Brown and the famous Flames by Fats Gonder from that recording. The band starts their set by playing I'll Go Crazy. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great place to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business, man that's saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewildered. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. You know I feel all right. You know I feel all right, children. I feel all right. James Brown went on to record many of his most popular and enduring singles during the mid-60s, including I Got You, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, And it's a man's, man's, man's world. With its unique rhythmic quality, he achieved all of it by essentially reducing his band to one giant percussive instrument. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag is considered the first of a new genre called funk, an offshoot of soul and a precursor of hip-hop. In the mid-60s, Brown also began devoting more and more energy to social causes. In 1966, he recorded Don't Be a Dropout, an impassioned plea to the black community to place more focus on education. Here, James Brown talks about education in his own community. The education uh, is one thing everybody needs. We must admit that there are certain people, the ethnic people around the world, who were more or less fortunate and do uh, greed. They were deprived of uh, getting a lot of things, uh, but uh, I helped the black more and deal with the black because I was closer to that environment. That's my environment, and 
I felt there was a reason for me to do it. Very proud. I feel that a man shouldn't be deprived because of the color of his skin. Uh, uh, he should be judged by the contents of his character and his knowledge. And uh, if they haven't had chance, much chance and much opportunity to get an education, it's hard to deal with it. So I felt it was my, my privilege and my honor and, and, and it was my job and my duty. And I'm very proud. And uh, regardless of what your color is, just be proud and do what you have to do. But it's not about color. It's neither black or white. It's what's right. It's neither white or black. It's the fact. You got to have it together. Now a good friend of mine sat with me and he cried. He told me a story. I know he hadn't lied. Said he went for a job, and this a man said, Without an education, you might as well be dead. Now don't get me wrong, he said it's not who you are. But people come to me from a near and a far. But I do just work, and I follow the rules. I didn't have an education, so I had to go back to school. My friend told all his buddies that he loved so well. And all their personal troubles, I will not tell. Now those guys didn't seem good, and they didn't seem bad. They didn't seem so happy, and I know they weren't sad. But the point is it that they follow the rules. They got an education, and they all finished school. Now underneath this hill, I can see the truth back. When he dropped out of school, he never, never went back. On April 5th, 1968, the day after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, with riots raging across the country, Brown gave a rare televised live concert in Boston in an attempt to prevent rioting there. His effort succeeded. Young Bostonians stayed home to watch the concert on TV, and the city largely avoided violence. We've been being bad talked about as sure as you won't. But just as sure as it takes two eyes to make a pair. <laughs> Brother, we can't quit until we get our share. In 1979, an optimistic Brown said that racial tension was more of an economic issue and that young people have erased the issue. Brown goes on to describe money as the root of all evil. The race problem has wound up being an economical problem. I think it was used for advantages in the hearts of people. The young kids today don't have time for that job. That's, only, that's stupid. And they realize it and they... They go out and they're more bold and, and more aggressive. And they say, hey, I'm going to love the cat if he's together. Uh, don't love me because I'm black or white. Love me because I'm right and because I got soul. And young kids today have erased that problem. Uh, naturally, uh, America had a tremendous chance. Any Western country had a chance. Like Europe at one point, then it moved on to America. And had a great opportunity. Canada, all of them had a great opportunity. But I think it was so much wealth. And money is the root of all evil. Uh, like I said, money won't change you. And uh, sometimes people forgot that they thought if they had money, they could do anything. And uh, kind of made a mistake. I believe the country will get itself together uh, later on. The, the economical problem has is, is put everybody kind of in their place. 
And God bless America, God bless the world, God bless every race and every nationality. A slightly different tone, a slightly more mature man. The career started to wane in the 70s, but in the 80s, something special happened. The Blues Brothers, Living in America, which featured prominently in Rocky IV. And then we get a context. We start to really look back at this man, his talent. And here is James talking about how his music, in the end, was really 20 years ahead of its time. Things like Sex Machine and uh, Hot Pants uh, is 20 years ahead of their time. So what it is, the people are trying to find out what we're doing. And that's been why my band, when they play people, they, they can't get the people off the other, to sit down because the things that we do, you know, it's so different, you know, because they're unwritten stuff. See, we changed the musical structure in 1965 with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag because music was written on two and four and on the up-tempo. And now we played on a downbeat, which is totally different. Want to go out with a man's 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 world and take a listen to what in the end James was. He was a great dancer. He was a heck of a showman. But what a pure singer. What a singer. And so we leave you with this on James Brown's day of birth in this day in history. Habib, this is Our American Stories. Again, the life of James Brown, born on this day in history. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about the men and women in our military on this show, and we tell a lot of stories about Americans of faith. And today we have a story about a remarkable man who lived, served, and died at the intersection of these two great communities. This is the story of a Catholic priest, a U.S. Navy chaplain, one who earned our nation's highest award for valor. Here's Father Daniel Mode who wrote the book on Father Vincent Capadano, appropriately titled The Grunt Padre. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole other world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. 
Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive during elections in Vietnam. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, including M Company of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Father Capadonna was with them at the headquarters when they got the call to go. And they were to go to a battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station, literally in the midst of the battle. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men. There are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post, we're being overrun, we're being overrun, we can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months. He had already served with the 7th Marines, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder, and brought him back to relative safety. Time and time again throughout that late morning, and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. He knew where the sacraments were needed. It wasn't on the safety side of the hill. And in a firefight like that, it doesn't take long until everyone gets injured, at least a little. And Father Capadano was no exception. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deploy tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks, save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. He propped himself exposed to fire on a tree stump. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield. Sergeant Peters was an Orthodox man, again dying, 
exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, to care for him in his last hours of life, and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, My gun is jammed! My gun is jammed! Without a thought, Father Capadano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. The last moment of Father Capadano's life took place near a machine gun nest where three Marines, one of them being Ray Harton, Corporal Ray Harton, were going to try to put down that machine gun nest that was getting the better hand of the battle. As they made their way there, they were all shot. Two instantly killed. Ray was shot in his left shoulder. A corpsman went to his side, Corpsman Leal. That corpsman was shot through his legs. Both of them now were lying on the battlefield bleeding, expecting that the next thing they would feel would be bullets or bayonets. Instead, it was Father Capadano running across the battlefield to them. First, he went to Ray Harton, who again was bleeding through his shoulder. He blessed and anointed him. Ray had just served his mass the day before on Sunday. And he said these words to him, Staying calm, Marine. God is with us all today, and you're going to be okay. Then he ran to the side of Corman Leal. Again, his legs had been shot. He prayed over them. And at that moment of his prayers, Corman Leal was also Catholic. He was shot 27 times in the back. And so ended the life of Father Vincent Capadano here on this earth. For his gallantry, Father Capadano earned our nation's highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. But Father Capadano's influence went well beyond Vietnam, well beyond September 4, 1967. One man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano, and then he said these words. I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? And as you can imagine, Father Capadano changed the lives of many of the Marines he served with in Vietnam. One of those Marines is a name you might recognize from our story about him. You'll certainly recognize his company. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. The father of Vincent R. Capadano, his service to his country, to his fellow soldiers, and most of all, to his Lord. His story, here 
on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about movies on this show. And in this next story, you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stramopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then 11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience. Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Ark comic book on the bus is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, I'm remaking Raiders Lost Ark, do you want to help? And I thought all the sets were built, everyone was cast, I'd just sort of walk on and help. Little did I know, the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay and, as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones. So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun. The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like... I don't ever think it entered our minds, you know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole, you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that... It's like, this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it, and... 
and we had no long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us. Mm. So we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Mm. Wouldn't it be exciting if? And we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy. How did these kids in southern Mississippi back in the early 80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy. As a uh, 11 and 12 year old respectively growing up in Mississippi in the uh, 80s pre-internet you know how do you remake a 26 million dollar movie on your allowance you know we knew nothing about it and and for the first year so we kind of figuratively speaking groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that you know I wrote a 600 page shot list and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless you know close up and he walks into room I mean, what are you going to do with that and, and then figured out okay no storyboards that's how the professionals do it yeah yeah and it was sort of by osmosis uh, filmmaking on the fly now filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous especially when kids are in charge one day there was a fire on the set most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we would, we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer that was our time. So uh, think 120% humidity, typical Mississippi summer day. Um, we'll start early and, um, and uh, saunter down to the basement where... You know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the uh, lining the uh, the shelves, and, and Jason, our cameraman, is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, the the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down, and um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire, and for some reason I had a problem with this. Um, so. But they allowed us to continue with uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so um, he helped us uh, guide us to when, you know, there wasn't enough fire in certain edges of the frame, you know, more, more gasoline over there. It's a wonder we didn't burn the house down. Don't try this at home, kids. When making a film, be it in Hollywood or Mississippi, there are several stages of production. There's pre-production, shooting, and post-production. Here again is Eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film. First summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot, kept none of it because again, we didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, so there's very few shots that, that we actually kept from that first year, but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again. Through uh, trial and error, we slowly picked up things about uh, learning about composition, lighting, blocking, acting, and bit by bit we got better. And only when we were satisfied with uh, the quality of a shot and of a scene would we move on to the next. Now these kids are obviously determined to get the film made, but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s. And that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate. We only actually saw the movie a few times, you know, uh, uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84. And so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of 
you know, Raiders paraphernalia, you know, um, storybooks and magazines and, and bubblegum cards and, and all that stuff, the comic book and the screenplay, and, and to the best of our memory, sat down and, and Eric, you know, chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint. But we, you know, we went back to the theater as much as we could, but, um, you know, for those of us who kind of remember the 80s, there were... There, video stores were really in their infancy that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted you know um, there was an availability issue you know and and it was in a movie when they kind of re-released things so when the movie was re-released in the theater we went back and watched it you know again as much as our you know allowance would allow so the boys ended up finishing their scene by scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport Mississippi on August 12th, 1989. Chris Strompolis, Eric Zala, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one. It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked, the Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort, considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death-by-propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways, going off to college, and the film was largely forgotten until 2003, when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film getting discovered all those years later. I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan. So she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and like exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know, my wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you like let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that like, that reaction, you know? And she's like, this is cool, this is great. So this little remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood. Each of us um, received a very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually, you know, photographed me at various stages of opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down on, you know, stationary Steven Spielberg and, you know, his signature and, you know, this, my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his, his work. Um, uh, wow, I can't get any better than this, but I was wrong. Um, you know, jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh, we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent. We have an agent now. Um, Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon. God, <laughs> I was doing okay handling all this up to this point, but now I feel kind of sick. 
In the year 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12-year-olds, thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982. Be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. And one of our favorite topics here on Our American Stories is the story of a song. And today, we're going to tell you the story of how we've listened to our favorite songs and how these songs have shaped and defined our lives. Here's Greg Hengler. In 1877, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, the first record player. Almost two decades later, in 1896, radio was invented. We've come a long way from the phonograph to today's MP3. How we got here is the story we are about to tell. Let's begin with the godfather of hip-hop culture, Africa Mbamba, music writer Chuck Granada, Recording engineer Rudy Van Gelder and Elton John. Way back before my time, they had the turntable that you used to have to crank up. Then it has this big fat needle with a little pin on it. And they used to get on the record and you might hear the crack of pops popping in it. And they used to hear the song coming through a horn. You might not have no bass, but you had a lot of trouble, but you still was learning to dance with it. Those old 78 RPM records, the grooves were cut into shellac and were very noisy. Those 78s, the playing time was three minutes each side. The 78 was, you know, big and, and it broke. Here's Chuck Granada and Steven Van Zandt. In the 1940s, Two major rivals had been experimenting with a way to create a quieter record with a longer playing time. There was Columbia, headed by William Paley, and RCA Victor, which was headed by David Sarnoff. Sarnoff had RCA, and they had everything, okay? They had radio, they invented the record player, they invented the record, the record being the 10-inch shellac 78. So, in 1948, Sarnoff going along merrily, owning the world. And this upstart, Paley, 10 years younger, invites him to the CBS office and says, listen, David, we want you to hear our new product. And he plays him the first 33 album. A new kind of record, LPs play for 25 instead of four minutes without interruption. 
as though it were a top secret mission, Paley had his engineers create a long playing vinyl record before RCA had the chance to come out with their version. So that really aggravated Sarnoff. So Sarnoff leaves there and calls his entire office into the room and says, you know, you have exactly five minutes to explain to me how this punk beat me to the punch with something new. And they go through all their files looking for some way to combat this. And they go all the way back to their very first record. It happened to be a seven-inch disc. And they create this, this seven-inch 45. On the new distortion-free RCA Victor 45 RPM records. Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you apple, plum, and I forgot to do Come on to my house. What are teenagers listening to on the radio? They're listening to one song, two songs that are the most popular. So let's come out with a disc that has two songs on it, and we'll sell it for... 50 cents. And along with the kids' records, the kids' record player, which he takes into his room by himself to play his records. And a whole new thing is born called Teenage Rock and Roll. Here's Paul Anka, Jeff Beck, and Roger Daltrey. Music was everywhere, and it was always the social event based around that funny little machine. To hear Eddie Cochran, 20 Flight Rock, that was it. And this thing used to whir around and almost rattle itself off the table because it's spinning so fast. The rock single was the thing that really made us all want to be rock singers or guitarists or in a band. And it was the noise of it. Here's George Martin. What amazed me was the sheer technical ferocity of the stuff. Volume. I could actually see the loudness of the record in the groove. The louder you could make a pop record, the better it was likely to sell. Rock and roll was considered bad for the youth of America by a lot of people, mostly adults. Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Music was segregated during the 50s. People used to call it black music, brace music. And a lot of the people used to think that it was a little too suggestive. When you throw me like you throw me with a touch that always fills me with love. So fine. In the morning. 45 records, I think, did a lot for bringing the races together. I think it was the beginning of the end for that old race music. Here's songwriting team Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber. Jerry and I were young white kids, even though we liked to think of ourselves as black, who loved black music. And those were the artists that we wanted to write for. I first met Big Mama Thornton in Johnny Otis's rehearsal space. She was quite intimidating. She had a few scars on her face, looked like razor scars, but she could sing. The 
A&R man, Johnny Otis, called and said, I'm doing a session with her, and I need songs, so you better come on down. She was wearing old farmer jeans. She looked like she didn't have much use for guys like us. Her actual physical being inspired Jerry. I think it probably took us about 10 minutes to write Hound Dog. I said, you know what, man, I'm not happy with this song. I said, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. It's not, it's not enough kick. I want something really dirty, like Dirty Mother Furrier, don't you know? And I said, no, they won't play that on the radio. I really want something that's really kick. Hound dog, I mean, give me a break. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of sound, the story of records, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're listening to Big Mama Thornton's Everything Gonna Be All Right. And now let's return to Greg Hengler and the 60 years of songwriting team Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller as they continue to tell the story of how they wrote a song called Hound Dog for Big Mama in 1952. This prolific songwriting team wrote some of the most enduring classics in the history of rock and roll. Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, There Goes My Baby, and On Broadway. Here's Stoller and Lieber. We attempted to interest her in the song. She snatched the paper out of my hand. She said, what's this? I said, that's the song. He said, this is the song? I said, yeah. You ain't... Nothing but a hound dog. I remember Jerry saying it, it doesn't go like that, Big Mama. She said, white boy, don't tell me how to sing the blues. Elton John. My mum came home with a record. She said, I've just heard this record, and it's the sort of music I've never heard before, she said, but it's fantastic. And she said, listen to it. You ain't nothing but a It was a total introduction to a different sort of music, obviously, which I found out later to have its roots in blues and rockabilly and folk and country uh, and gospel. Um, but, you know, Elvis Presley, you know, was the one. You ain't nothing Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Thanks to Elvis, we were able to combine a mixture of what they thought white felt and what blacks felt. Elvis brought a style of his own, wiggling his behind and what have you and singing this same song by Big Mama Thornton, and all of a sudden it became acceptable. When I heard Elvis's rendition of Hound Dog, I thought it was 
kind of rockabilly, didn't have any blood in it. But after it sold seven million records, it started to uh, sound better. Here's Chuck Granada. Big Mama Thornton's recording of Hound Dog in 1953 did very well. It was a 78 RPM that sold between half a million and a million copies. When Elvis's came out on a 45 RPM record in 1956, it sold 10 million copies. And that was a turning point for the 45. Meanwhile, other artists are beginning to make inroads with the 33 and a third LP. In the wee small hours of the morning, while the whole wide world is fast asleep. By 1954, Frank Sinatra is at the top of his game the sweet spot for his voice and his work. At the same time, he's got this deep emotional upheaval because he's really carrying a torch for Ava Gardner, to whom he's still married, but not with. He's already broken up with her. And when he walked into the Capitol studio to record in the wee small hours, he understood that he could use this new format, the LP, for long-form expression. You ain't been blue. No, no. Here's music writer Jody Rosen. Before the long playing record, we had a three-minute long song. Now, we could have a long-form musical story. And so Sinatra created this crazy thing called the concept record. Well, you've had that mood in Frank sat with little pieces of paper with each song title on it, and he would shuffle them around so that they told a story. 16 songs, single statement. What it's like to lose your love. Frank always wanted Ava back. And what we hear in In the Wee Small Hours is a reflection of that anguish that he had lost this great love of his life. Always get that mood indigo Since my baby said goodbye In the evening when the lights are low, I'm so lonely I could cry. This landmark album coincided with true high fidelity sound. The LP, magnetic tape, and these gorgeous Neumann microphones that gave you the most incredible richness. In creating this concept album, Sinatra solidified a format for all of music to follow. Here's Paul Anka. Number four, Love 
was your number nine? Well, in the 50s, in the early 60s, the single record was the thing. If you didn't have that, you didn't get the album, which was a follow-through, and then you didn't have a career. Here's Tommy from Tommy James and the Shondells. And radio was the way you put new records in front of the public. So I loved AM radio. Be happy. Come on, everybody. It's a beautiful night in Chicago. These 50,000-watt clear channel stations, I mean, WLS in Chicago would hit 10 to 20 million people. Hi, everybody all over America. This is your cousin, Brucey. It's the WABC Party. Go, go. Woo! They'd hit 38 states at night. There's nothing more exciting thing on this earth than an exploding smash hit single because it just it happens everywhere at once and it just goes. It's like an atomic bomb. So you knew going in the studio that everything you had to say had to be no longer than two minutes and 30 seconds or shorter if you wanted to get on the radio. Here's the band's Robbie Robertson. This is like 1965. We were zooming around uh, Manhattan. And John Hammond Jr. said, listen, a friend of mine is recording. And I said I would stop in and say hello and hear a little bit of what he's doing. So we went to Columbia Recording Studios. And Bob Dylan and these musicians were in there recording and they were recording like a rolling stone once upon a time you dressed so fine do the bumps of time in your prime then you people call say beware doll you're bound to fall you thought they were all can you and i didn't know but i thought this song is really interesting it was like a different kind of songwriting Dion, Dion and the Belmonts was there. Here's Dion. It was great to watch. Dylan had recorded some albums with just his guitar. And now he had a few of the guys uh, from the Brill Building come up and play with, you know, drums, a full band behind him. It was exciting. But he was like, like somebody let him out of a cage or something. <laughs> he knew what he was about and exactly what he wanted to do. You couldn't sway him. Because I heard some musicians say, listen, you can't do it. He said, follow me. Here's record producer Don Wise. Like a Rolling Stone, in my opinion, is the greatest single anyone's ever made. It's a really ambitious statement to put in a rock and roll 45. Just a couple of years past, like, be my baby. And Napoleon in rags, and the language that he used. Go to him now, he calls you, you can't refuse. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, in essence, of American music. By the way, the innovation on the technical side, prompting innovation on the musical side, and an explosion occurs, a convergence of every form of music in America. More of this remarkable story of the American musical story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with this remarkable story about American music, basically, and how the 33, the 45, and the 78 were competing and created very different formats. And now let's continue with Greg Hengler and more of this story. Records, cassettes, CDs, and MP3s. These are not just vehicles for music. They are reflections of ourselves in the time we live in. As technology has evolved, each generation has had a format to call its own. This is the story of our on-again, off-again love affair with musical formats and how magical pieces of wax, plastic, and silicone changed our world. Let's return to our story and pick up where we left off with Bob Dylan's masterpiece, Like a Rolling Stone. Columbia had really become an album company. Bob makes what is perhaps the longest single ever made, six minutes long. Like a Rolling Stone, all of a sudden, it becomes a hit single. Now Bobby Dylan comes front and center at WHK with song number six on the survey. This is called Like a Rolling Stone. You're going to hear the whole six-minute version here. I think that the impact on radio was huge. You know, that maybe we can offer more. Uh, this is KSAN in San Francisco. Here's Stephen Van Zandt. Around 69, FM radio started, which meant... You know, the DJs were slowed down now. And that's the way it was, and that's the way it is. And it's always changing, and it is always the same. And they were talking more conversationally, and it was all sort of being taken much more seriously. Uh, Here's Tommy James. We went out uh, with Hubert Humphrey in 1968 on the presidential campaign. He was, of course, running for president. He was the vice president. Well, when we went out on the campaign, uh, the big acts of the day were the Rascals, the Association, the Buckinghams, Gary Puckett, us, you know, uh, all singles acts. 90 days later, when we get back, no kidding, the hottest acts are Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all album acts. We knew that if we were going to stay in this business, we had to sell albums. Led Zeppelin, I believe, was the first one to tell the record company they were not permitted to put out a hit single anymore because they were just so uncool. Here's Dion. All of a sudden, the 50s, people are on album covers, they're all smiling. The 60s hit, you don't smile on album covers anymore. Kennedy was assassinated. Rock and roll went down about five octaves. It got serious. Here's music writer Greg Milner. During the 70s, especially in the rock world, the LP was king. But it had drawbacks. They can scratch. They're certainly not portable. And there was no way to make one easily. You had to go in a recording studio. You couldn't just make uh, an LP at home. Music in pocket size and instant loading. 
The cassette tape was a good example of a technology that really didn't even pretend to be in advance over what came before in terms of sound quality. It was, however, very, very portable. You record from your radio or make your own programs. And the first time anybody could make a recording, it's very easy to make like a direct, you know, from vinyl to tape recording. Here's music producer Nigel Godrich, Adam Horowitz, and Dave Grohl. I just taped all my friends. You know, I just had thousands of cassettes. You know, I was pirating as a child, you know, absolutely. Think about when you were a kid and you're going to school and your pockets are like this and it's like all tapes. We would make cassettes and share them with friends. And we would pass them around and then we'd go see those bands when they came into town. And we felt like that music was ours. Of course, you could also make mixtapes, so essentially you could create your own LPs. You had your cassette for a dollar and you'd put all your favorite songs on it. You could find connections between songs, you could find thematic things. If I was making a tape for you, I'd be like, you know what, I have a feeling you're gonna like these particular types of songs. You'd maybe put some romantic things on there, you'd try to be cool with it. This is how I feel, you know, about you. In this particular selection of songs, in this particular order, it was a big deal. It's an extent of your arm, it's the extent of your personality. If there's a girl that you're really into, first thing I do is I go make her a mixtape. It was a document for who you were at that moment, who you, how you wanted the rest of the world to see you through the prism of the music that you loved. Here's Nina Cherry. From the south to the west to the east to the I remember getting a mixtape from Corona Queens. It was Spoonie G. It was just like a cassette from like a bodega. And I think I probably killed it. You know, I played it to death. It was like the first real uncommercial hip hop, sounding like it was coming off the street. And I fell in love with it. Here's Dave Grohl. The first music scene that I fell in love with was the punk rock scene. My cousin Tracy, she brought me upstairs and she showed me a record collection and she had fanzines. And you go to the back of one of those fanzines and there'd be this classified ad section where, hey, I have a band, here's my demo tape, it's only 250. Send two stamps and I'll send you a sticker and my cassette. And I realized there was this whole underground network, like, whoa, man, all of this is happening without anybody having any idea it's going on. The cassette industry is booming. For the first time ever, pre-recorded cassettes are beginning to rival sales of the vinyl disc. The thing that really drove cassette sales was the advent of a handheld cassette player that you could listen to with headphones. You can it to the music with a Sony Walkman. The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Here's recording engineer Bob Ludwig and music writer Jason King. They came up with a really good set of headphones for these little Walkmans, and for the first time, you could take a device this big with a, with a, a good set of headphones and climb the top of Mount Everest, and you could listen to a Mahler symphony and get chills down your spine. The Sony Walkman has forever changed the way the world listens to music. That was an exciting new technology because basically it inaugurated the era of private listening. It was about walking in the street with your headphones on and the music being contained to your personal space. 
the idea that being able to have your own soundtrack wherever you went, that's what really, I think, changed the game. You could actually take them with you on the bus. You had the sound right there in your head. By 1983, the labels had records and they had cassettes. They didn't see anything really new on the horizon. And when we come back, we continue with the story of the American music business, the innovations, the cultural ones, the musical ones, and of course, the technical ones. We continue this story here on Our American Stories. continue with this final segment of this remarkable music story, let's return to Greg Hengler and the conclusion. By 1983, there were records and cassettes. No one saw a new format on the horizon. Here's music reporter Steve Knopper, music executive Phil Quarter-Aro, and recording engineer Elliot Shiner. It's a disc, a digital audio disc, a gizmo so revolutionary that backers hope it will make records and tapes obsolete. The CD sounded really, really good, but the record industry has always been deeply suspicious of new technology. Industry executives said, you know, no effing way, basically. We will never get the compact disc. And the reason was because they were so worried about piracy. When you copied a CD to a cassette tape, that was a pristine copy. But the CD was cool at the time. It sounds so quaint now, but it was, it was shiny, and if you tilted it a certain way, it looked like a rainbow. It didn't scratch, and you could play it potentially in your car. And so the consumers really liked this thing. And towards the end of the 80s, people started to rebuy their music they already owned on vinyl. They started to repurchase the same collection on CD. 18, 19, 20 dollars for a CD that was really worth no more or maybe even less than the LP. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine and Don Was. You got a record deal, you got one song, you put 17 other songs on because they fit, and you, the people bought albums for 18 dollars that had one song on it. When we look at the decline in the popularity of the album and of sales, I think that was just way worse than some college students downloading songs for free. You know, it's like making records. <laughs> Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley, DJ Greg Gillis, and Warner Brothers CEO Cameron Strang. With the click of a mouse, Napster allows fans to download virtually any song completely free. In 1999, some college students created a file sharing program called Napster. 
all of a sudden, people are like, wait a minute, I don't have to drive to a record store, pay $20 to buy a CD that just has two songs on it that I like. I can sit at home and download countless albums for nothing. And it just was like, you just discovered this golden mine, you know, it just all of a sudden, all of the music you want, it's right there in front of you and it's very easy to download. When they put music up for file sharing, 40 some odd million people came. And you know, there were other companies like giving away money on the internet and you couldn't get 40 million people to come. So the power of music was the first thing that struck me. I was like, wow. The court struck down Napster after two years, but by then there were all these services all over the internet and they all use the same new format, the MP3. Here's Suzanne Vega. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. I was taking my daughter to school, and one of the parents that I didn't know turned to me and said, congratulations on being the mother of the MP3. To the woman who has come in, she is shaking her umbrella. So I went home and, and looked it up, and sure enough, it had this story about how this engineer called Karl-Heinz Brandenburg had used the original, unremixed version of Tom's Diner to test this thing he was working on called the MP3. My research was how to compress music in a way that it would fit through a phone line. And I already thought I'm pretty much done, everything works well. Someone was playing Tom's Diner down the hall. Susan Vega's voice sounds like she is standing in a room. And it's very clear and clean voice. And I said, okay, I want to try to see what our algorithms do with it. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for Unfortunately, the Susan Vega's voice was destroyed. It took us a couple of years until we really could do her voice perfectly clean. I had no idea what would come next. And I met Karl-Heinz Brandenburg. And they were talking about this great new thing that was just going to be the coolest. You could play music on your phone, on your cell phone. And I remember thinking, that's kind of, who cares? Like, I don't need to play music on my phone. I just did not see what the MP3, what the future was going to be. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. Early 2000s are really tumultuous period because a format change. Digital technologies recalibrate almost everything about how we consume music. You plug it into your computer and download your favorite songs. iTunes comes along and is selling songs for 99 cents. The music industry is just reeling. Selling digital music player in the nation, revolutionizing the way Americans of all ages listen to music. MP3s unravel what we know about people wanting albums. And so, interestingly enough, we're back to a singles-driven culture. We take it for granted now, but then it was a really remarkable concept that I could walk around with 10,000 songs in my pocket. But then, with the era of YouTube, one of the main pieces of content that people want to upload is music. 
They want to upload their favorite song. They want to upload this video that they made to their favorite song. And YouTube still, I believe, is the number one music streaming service in the world. Justin Bieber's songs have been listened to, some of them have been listened to 400 million times on YouTube. We listen to music on our earbuds, over our telephones, through computers. When I'm listening to full albums on YouTube, people just upload them, and sometimes they'll just go to the next video. Oddly enough, YouTube is kind of like a new radio. CDs are just disappearing, you know? CDs are dead. Today we have a format which is almost an invisible format. There's an amazing amount of, you know, these streaming services. My preferred method of listening to music is Spotify. SoundCloud. iHeartRadio. Sometimes Pandora. Sometimes iTunes. I'll buy songs. I don't know. I actually like that it's not physical. I feel like it saves time, energy, money. Here's Moby. Our kids, our grandkids, will literally be baffled by the idea that at one point people owned music. Here's Meryl Garbus. Whether we like it or not, people want music instantaneously at their fingertips. I do. I want to turn on my RDO or, or Spotify or whatever. I want to say, I really need to hear Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar right now. And I can have that, you know? That is just the world that we live in. Here's MTV founder Tom Freston, record producer Eddie Kramer, and Amy Mann. The problem I have is discovering good new music. There's just an overwhelming abundance of material. Trying to figure out which technology. It became such a different experience on so many levels that I just stopped listening to music. It's only been lately that I've started again and kind of almost giving myself permission to jump back into stuff from the 70s that I never paid any attention to, like bread. format shift in the record industry, I mean, on average, is usually 15, 20 years. Everything's up in the air now. It, it, the next five to 10 years will be super interesting. But the power of music will always be massive. It's about the song. It's about the art not the medium. Music transcends the technology, the format, whatever form you give it to me in. If the quality is good, um, if I can access what I want to hear, I'm a happy man. Here's Phil Quartararo and Roger Waters. What won't change is your relationship with music. Because sometime this year, you're going to hear a song that makes you want to cry. And um, we human beings have been trying to work out what it is about the mathematics of the arrangement of musical notes that elicits an emotional response in us. And it's still a mystery. Here's composer Michael Tilson Thomas, Rizza, and Daryl McDaniels. Our lives are pretty much defined by what? I don't know, 20, 30 records? How many of a years passes when you want to go back to your high school memory? A song could do it for you. There's always that piano, that verse, that voice, that beat, that cut, that scratch, that guitar riff that's going to save your life. Here's Annie Lennox. I'm so grateful to all the musicians that made the music that I ever heard because it all went in and 
It's enriched my life. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love. Here's George Martin. And we've seen now a hundred years of recorded sound. And we've seen the effect of that sound on people. And it has been quite remarkable. It's changed our lives. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Great job, as always, Greg. And you were listening to George Martin, perhaps the greatest innovator in the studio. He was, of course, the fifth Beatle, the producer of the Beatles. Another great Our American Stories music segment, one of my favorites. And to hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And we have the story of the song up there and so much more. Hours upon hours, I would say probably over 100 now just on songs and musical history. The story of American music, of innovation, of formats, and of course, the songwriters and singers and musicians themselves. The music no other country in the world produces like we do. This is Our American Stories.